that it's so easy to get access to all this data so quickly. So from that, I decided to study cybersecurity. And then the following fall, so after my summer internship, I decided to study cybersecurity and started taking cybersecurity courses at the university. And then from that, I, I decided to stay on that path and continue my career in the field. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. I wish I had that option when I graduated. Uh, I also did computer science, but of course my journey went straight into soft, um, software um, programming. Yeah, so yeah. well done to you. Um, so what does um, your role as, as an AI security researcher um, uh, entail? So as an AI security researcher, I'm basically focusing on standardizing 5G and 6G. So for those who are not aware, 6G, for example, will come out in 2030. It's basically a 10-year process to actually develop the standards for these technologies because it can be so complicated. Um, whenever there's a new architecture that's proposed, like let's say in 6G, we want to use AI to do something. One thing a lot of people are talking about is the metaverse, virtual reality, maybe there will be some AI component in that. So my job is to basically understand these architecture proposals and then secure it. Basically say, okay, you are proposing these architecture features, but what are the security vulnerabilities behind that? And how can we introduce designs that will secure this idea? So, so you're doing uh, design be before the, the infrastructure is rolled out, the security design is, you're having that done before, before yeah, you have so the, be yeah? Before, before it's even brought out to a consumer. So it's basically the research and development effort to standardize the technology. Because whenever you have operators deploying 5G or 6G, they need to have a standard guideline they follow basically. So my job is basically, how do we develop a secure standard guideline for 5G and 6G before it goes to the consumer, before it goes to an operator? Like in the US, there's T-Mobile, AT&T. So before it goes to any of those companies, how do we secure that technology? I actually thought uh, 5G was already out. Is it? Is it 5G is, it, is, is it out. Yeah. And we're developing new features. We're calling it 5G Advanced. So 5G okay. is out. And then there will be a new release called 5G Advanced. And we're also working on 6G. Presumably, you already have the guidelines for 5G. Yeah. And then we're just yeah. enhancing it now at this point. Okay, that's interesting. We're still, uh, we're not at 5G yet, are we, Theo? We're very far from 5G at the, in Uganda. So, yeah, that's, that's really interesting, yeah. So, what, what made you choose this path of uh, AI security research? Yeah, so in terms of deciding to do AI, AI security research, it wasn't that I woke up one day and completely decided I wanted to do AI security research. So what happened was I mentioned I studied cybersecurity, interested in AI security because I started attending industry conferences like IEEE, 
is an academic conference. So when I attended IEEE Security and Privacy, it's one of the famous conferences. They typically hold it in California every year. I attended that conference and people were presenting their research work. And I was very interested in the AI security research work and they were talking about AI attacks. So I thought that was very interesting because we all know about AI and how AI is everywhere. And I thought I want to also be able to secure it. And so then after I attended that conference, I started working at the university lab. Basically, usually university labs are for PhD students. And at this point, I was still an undergraduate student, uh, basically senior year or the fourth year of undergraduate studies. And I decided to work in this lab. And this lab actually specialized in big data analytics or using AI. And a lot of the work that they were doing was related to AI and cybersecurity research. So then when I started working in the lab, I learned about AI, how it works, how you can apply it to cybersecurity. And that's kind of what first sparked my interest in the field. And then, and now, of course, I work in AI security, but I think that was really what caused me to get interested, was I was just so inspired by all of the research that was going on around me. Yeah. Is there, are there any, uh, speaking to our audience as lay people, are there any key issues uh, that you see in AI security issues? Yeah, I think one big security issue with AI is that if you think about it, AI is just a tool that's analyzing all of this data. So uh, what's a good example? Let's say ChatGPT is something everyone's heard of. What ChatGPT is doing it's basically getting all this data from the internet. Now, the internet is not reliable, right? There can be all different kinds of data. Someone can say this thing is bad. Someone else can say this thing is good. So it's not reliable. But what ChatGPT is doing is it's basically taking all this data from the internet, whether it's tweets, whether it's news articles, and then giving you conclusions based on what it learns. So these conclusions that it learns from um, is based on all this data that it's seeing. So one security risk with AI is that not the results cannot always be trusted. Um, ChatGPT, if you look at it, there are studies that have shown how ChatGPT is actually not reliable with some functions. One article I saw on LinkedIn was showing how ChatGPT said one plus one equals jello, right? Which is basically a dessert. So that is obviously not the correct answer. And that's one security flaw. And then another security flaw is that because AI is analyzing all of this data, it can also tell you what this data might mean when someone else is asking the model for something. So let's say you work at a company, right? Like Josephine, you work in finance and you don't want your customer data to get leaked, to get leaked to someone else outside of your company. But if your company were to use a machine learning model and not secure their data, that data would actually get leaked to an outside competitor because 
all it's doing is it's learning from the data it sees and then gives you a result. So that, that's another security flaw is making sure you keep your data protected, encrypted, and don't share any confidential information to generative AI like ChatGPT. So whatever oh, data you, yeah, sorry, go on, Dale. Uh, that's a very interesting one concerning you not sharing information with AI because find people, yes, and a problem they're having, the first thing is ChatGPT. So uh, how do you make sure that also the information is not biased in terms of AI and uh, also, you know, making sure you clean the data to a, a right way of actually delivering better results for you and your work. Yeah, so for those who are watching who are not aware of data bias, so basically when you give your AI model data and it's learning from all of this data, your data could be biased and give you an incorrect prediction because your data set is not correctly balanced. Um, a good example would be uh, let's say I have a app on my phone and I'm trying to take pictures of street signs, for example, and I take pictures of street signs in my neighborhood where I am right now in Dallas. But then, of course, my AI model might only be able to recognize street signs in Dallas. And then if we were to go to Uganda and take those pictures of street signs, maybe then my AI model cannot recognize that because it's learning only from Dallas street signs. That's one example. And so AI bias, I think, is something you cannot completely eliminate because by nature of data, it is generated by humans. And as humans, we are all biased in our own ways, right? So. For example, if I were developing an app, I might be biased and only take pictures of signs maybe within the US. And then you were to deploy it to Uganda or somewhere else. And maybe then my model could not perform if it was not given data from Uganda or from India or from France. So that is one challenge with AI is making sure you have a diverse data set that reflects everything you are trying to use it for. And then in terms of cleaning the data, so that is something that is very challenging to do. So first thing is at a high level, when you want to clean the data, you basically want to make sure that your data is something that the machine learning model or AI could learn from. So a good high level example is when I take pictures of these street signs I need to make sure that those pictures are very clear. There's no obstruction. There's no blurriness. It's a very clear, sharp image, right? So that the AI model could learn from it. But in, in reality, it's actually very difficult to get such big data sets that AI needs. It's not something that's trivial. If you think about it, AI needs like millions of data sometimes, and you can't actually get all of that data. So a lot of times people are using open source data repositories. So basically data sets that are available to everyone on the internet. 
uh, and that, that's kind of one way you could consider training your model. And then within the companies themselves, they typically develop their own data in-house. And when they have tools, it's really tailored to their company and their own problems and use cases that they have. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Um, so, the, so the bias is in the data sets. But is it also in the algorithms that are written or is is that not yes yeah. so the it's not bias so it's called overfitting that's basically a different concept but it basically means that my model can learn very well on the training data so training data basically means all of the data that the model is learning from so going back to the street sign app example it's basically all the pictures I take in order to train my model, in order to actually develop it. And then once I train my model, then I test it, right? So after you train a machine learning model in AI, you would test it on other images that it hasn't seen before. So let's say my training data, it could be pictures of street signs in my neighborhood. And then I go to Austin, which is a city about three hours away, and I could test it on data sets basically in Austin. And, and what I do is I'm training on Dallas, and then I'm testing can it recognize street signs in Austin. And so that's how machine learning works. So overfitting is basically when it performs really well in this first training phase. And then when it comes to the testing phase, it's not able to recognize the data. So again, there could be bias in the algorithm itself. Okay, well, thank you for that explanation. I think that clarifies it a lot. Um, so we, we're looking at you, sorry, Dale. Yeah, I think now um, let's dive into the education aspect because there are two parts of you. <laughs> there is the work of the AI, then there is this other section of of teaching. Um, could you uh, walk us through how you came about teaching and um, yeah, basically that start from that. Yeah, so in terms of the adjunct professor job, I'm actually going to start next weekend. Um, so I came into this role because I studied my doctoral degree at the George Washington University, right? So I'm basically teaching at the same university I did the doctoral degree from. And I'm basically teaching a doctoral class on machine learning and reinforcement learning. So it's basically what we would think of as AI. So I'm basically teaching that to doctoral students in the AI and machine learning doctoral program. And how I actually came about it was um, the staff at the university that conducted my doctoral research recommended me for this job because they saw how I did really well in the doctoral program and they recommended that I join the university as an adjunct professor. But I've always really been interested in teaching and explaining concepts to others, 
partially why I'm on this podcast is I want people to understand these concepts like AI and security, cybersecurity, because in the media, people always throw around these buzzwords, but they don't really understand what it means. And then people could get scared of AI, for example, when actually there are many benefits of AI. So I just want to bring more awareness to all of this technology and help teach the next generation and others about the technology and how it works so that when 20 years from now, they can actually apply this technology properly and not be so scared with all of the buzzwords and media hype. Okay, so we're looking at um, your, your journey in terms of your career and how you've transitioned. Yeah, you you said your profile says you work you worked with uh, CISA, which is I think government, and now you're in the private sector. What? How was that uh, transition? What was that like? Yeah, so um, transitioning from the government to the private sector, I think, for me, I think it was very, very easy to do because I was working in a similar technological field. But to others that are watching, let's say someone who is watching is in the government and they want to transition to the private sector, uh, my advice for them would be to basically understand that the private sector works differently from the government. They use different terminology. When you're crafting your resume or you're interviewing, try to use the same kinds of words that you see in the job description instead of what you're used to using in the government. Um, and then I think my other advice is to network, right? If you're in the government and you want to go to the private sector, I recommend networking with the community. LinkedIn is a very good platform, especially if you're trying to get a private sector job because most people in the private sector are on LinkedIn. And typically in the government, from my experience, a lot of people were not on social media. So if someone were to want to go into the private sector, I recommend getting an online presence, showing off your knowledge, maybe creating an online portfolio with the work you have done. And, and that really helps. Is there a tempo difference or it's still the same? Is there typically in Uganda, the government a bit slower paced, private sector a lot more, uh, you know, KPI driven and all that. Is there any difference yes, in, that, there, in the pace? There is a difference in the US as well. Um, yes, government is slower. And in the private sector, you're more driven by KPIs and it's more faster. Because in the government, you have to remember that it's all about profit and generating profit for the business, whereas the government is serving the public, but it's a lot more slower. You are not as driven by the numbers as you are in the private sector. Okay. So um, speaking of that, now uh, the initial step, which is first of all, getting the job, the one you first got in the government. How are you able to get that? Because there are many viewers and visitors who will be like, ah, getting government jobs is not easy. And the level of trust and uh, the level of you know, certificates you are required to, they may be 
scared of them. So how did you get it? I think, so government, it, I think it would depend on the country. So I could only give you the US government perspective, but let's say you have U US viewers, maybe people who want to get into the US government. So um, first thing is I actually got into the government as a student, as an intern. And how I started in the government as an intern was there were programs within the US. They basically offered me a scholarship for my master's degree in exchange for two years or one and a half years in the government. So that's, that's really what I did was a lot of these universities have programs specifically designed for students to enter the government. They say, we need more technology workers. We need people who know AI, cybersecurity. So please join the government for us. We will pay for your university if you join the government. That's how I personally joined. Now, other recommendations, let's say your viewers are older, they're already established in their careers and they want to move to the government. In that case, again, my advice is to network with the government join the hiring fairs that they might have. Maybe they have some kind of job fairs. CISA, the organization I used to work with, I see all the time on LinkedIn, they have different hiring fairs. So network with the recruiters that you're interested in, right? If you're interested in CISA, then network with the recruiters at CISA, for example. And also my other advice for people looking to get into the government is again, the tech, Technology and the terminology is very different. So in the government, when they have a job description, I'm speaking from my experience at CISA, it's very long. In the private sector, you might see one or two paragraphs. In the government, sometimes the job descriptions can be one page, two pages. It can have a lot of words in it. And also in the government, it's more about, do you meet the requirements of the job description? So every single word that you see in the job description, let's say that a word could be customer service. You need to make sure you put that word in your resume. And typically for at least US government, I've noticed there's a concept of federal resume. So that's basically your government resume. So if you want to get a government job, all of the words in that job description should be on your resume. Not only those words, but also paragraphs explaining each skill set, right? So customer service, I, I demonstrate customer service because of X, Y, and Z and put that on your resume. And typically the government resumes can be six to 10 pages long uh, in most cases. So it can be quite long. So I think those are really my recommendations. If you're in the private sector and you want to go to government networking and creating that federal resume. Uh, the CV screening um, in government, is that, is that is, do they use programs to screen out CVs for the match or, yeah, or keywords or? Yeah, they do. Yes, um, within the US, there's a site called USA Jobs. It's basically an online job portal. You have to upload your resume there and then they refer you to certain positions. 
basically it's screening for again those keywords in the job description do you match it or not and they also in the government they look at education level right so based on your education level that determines your salary it's not what you studied but how much how much education you have okay so you you talk talk to us about why you you decided to to do cybersecurity analytics uh so we don't want to ask you why you did the doctorate but can you tell us about the why you felt necessary to do a doctorate a degree yeah so actually initially i never thought that i would do a doctorate i always thought a doctorate was unattainable right but um I was involved with different outreach organizations. One of them was called Women in Cybersecurity, and they have a mentoring program. And my mentor at the time actually recommended doing a doctoral degree because she said, if you have a doctoral degree, then it is much easier later in your career when you want to get promoted and progress in your career. And she says, definitely just get a doctoral degree. It doesn't matter how long it takes just get that degree and when I saw this program I actually reached out to her on LinkedIn and asked her should I go for this and she said yes definitely do that so I think mentoring is definitely something that is very important and having a community around you that helps encourage you and supports you in your career and as and, far as I go ahead and, and the concept of a a PhD is pretty intimidating. Was there, yeah. there anything that you were really, really afraid of? Or was there was something that just demystified the, that fear? What was that? Yes, I was very scared when I first signed up for the doctoral program, right? Because it's a doctorate. You, you think that's something some normal person could not achieve. But when I actually joined the program, I realized that, for example, the coursework phase, it was something that I had already done during my undergraduate degree and master's degree. They're just courses. And what really helped me eliminate the fear was I had a lot of friends that I made in the program. So I basically created a study group and we met once a week once every two weeks to just study the material. And we also supported each other when it came time to develop our research. So if anyone is interested in doing a doctoral degree, um, I recommend you know network with your fellow students, have study groups, and it's really important to get some sort of support system, whether it's from your family or friends, because it is very challenging, but it's not, it's not impossible. It just makes sure you have the support around you. Yeah, Th thank you for that. That's very encouraging. Yeah. So when it comes to certificates, uh, definitely uh, there are many certificates. And when it comes to job roles, you will find multiple certificates you're supposed to do. And uh, uh, sometimes it's scary at some point how much you're supposed to cover. So what do you usually recommend when it comes to certificates and where would someone, you know, go to find out which certificates to, to do? Yeah, so in cybersecurity, I think we emphasize certs a lot. But before we talk about certs, I want to tell the audience that 
before you decide what cert you want to get, decide what job you want to have and make sure you have passion for that job. If you hate the idea of penetration testing, getting a penetration testing certificate won't help you. So first, decide what job you want to get. And then from that, develop your own side projects, your own ideas, and maybe put that on your website. And that will really help you get a job. But then in terms of certs, a lot of certs stand out to me. If someone is entry level and they're watching this, I recommend getting a CompTIA Security Plus. So CompTIA is a vendor or a company that designs cybersecurity certifications. It's spelled C-O-M-P-T-I-A. If you look that up, they have many different certifications. Typically at the entry level, they like seeing Security Plus. And then if you have if you want to do more networking type work, people also get the Network Plus, which is again from the same company. Now, let's say you are more experienced. You have five years of experience in cybersecurity and you want to be promoted to management. Then I recommend getting something called the CISSP. Um, for those who are aware of cybersecurity, most likely you have seen this certification already but it's from ISC squared. Uh, you search for ISC2 and then you'll see that company. And so CISSP is good for an information uh, security professional. It requires five years of experience, but a lot of times in jobs, you'll see that it is required. And then another certification is CISM, again, from that same company as CISSP. It's for information security managers. So if you really want to go the management route, then I recommend getting that. Again, it's better to get that one if you have five years of experience. So actually, before the show, I did send some links uh, for creating a cybersecurity pathway roadmap for the different certifications you want to get. So there's one that I found recently, it's called CyberSeek, so Cyber S-E-E-K, and it's based in the US, but I think anyone could apply this knowledge. It, it maps the different cybersecurity roles to different pathways that you need to follow. And when you click on that website, you'll see that if you click on, for example, cybersecurity engineer, it will tell you all those different certifications that they recommend. And a lot of those are the certs I already mentioned, but let's say you really want to be a certain type of specialty in cybersecurity, then definitely check out that website. And then another website I found, which I sent earlier, um, which you should see in the show notes, is for the UK government. So the UK has also developed their own cybersecurity certification pathway. I think they call it a roadmap. And if you go to that website, you'll again have a different perspective on the different training and skills that you might need in different cybersecurity roles. So even though these resources are based in the US and the UK, I think anyone in the world could use these resources and learn from them and learn what skills that they might need to have to get the role that they want. Thank you. That's really helpful. Um, I think it's, 
we, you know, we uh, it's very good guidance to say, you know, mid, mid, mid career, more experience. That's really helpful. Um, I'm so glad also that you talked about your experience of being mentored. But uh, I, I also, we also know that you, you do volunteer as a mentor. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience, the organizations you mentor with, uh, and what it is that interested you to take up mentorship? I was really interested in mentorship, not only because I was mentored, but to be honest with you, I probably wouldn't have pursued this career if it wasn't for the mentors and professors around me. So I definitely think the value of having a support structure is very important. And especially as a woman in cybersecurity, having female professors around me really helped inspire me to pursue the field. So that's why I want to do the same for my students and for others that are looking to get into the field. Um, I have mentored for many different outreach organizations um, women in cybersecurity, I mentored for them. That was also the organization I was um, a mentee at. And then I've also mentored at Women of Color, Advancing Peace uh, and Security. And it's basically WCAPS. They have a really long name, but basically the mission is to encourage women of color to pursue technology careers, uh, cybersecurity careers, careers in national security as well. And I specifically mentored because they have a cybersecurity and emerging technologies working group. So my latest mentee, she was actually based in South Africa and she was a teacher and she wanted to learn about cybersecurity and about technology because she was a teacher wanting to teach her students about cybersecurity and technology. And, and so it was very rewarding to be able to mentor her and to learn more about the different challenges that uh, different countries faced. Like she talks about um, in South Africa, there are a lot of villages and they don't have access to computers. So there are actually initiatives to teach students about computer science and about computer programming without having access to a computer. So I thought that was very interesting. So I really enjoy the idea of giving back to the community and inspiring others to pursue technology. But then also as a mentor, I learned I so much from my mentees and I have a much better understanding of technology and of cybersecurity. I mean, Thank that's you. wonderful that you're giving back as a, uh, as a mentor. And I think you know, especially as a woman, um, it's so good to see, you know, that you're mentoring other women, other young ladies and encouraging them to take up uh, careers within, you know, within the cybersecurity space or whatever. So, yeah, thank you very much for that. Yeah. When it comes to the security threats, huh? this is the cybersecurity podcast, you could, you need to... <laughs> some light and uh, security threats so which are those ones which keep you up at night especially when it comes to ai yeah, i think 
there are a lot of security threats that keep people up at night, right? Cybersecurity is not an easy field to work in because we always see in the news there's another threat, there's something else happening. Um, I think for me personally, uh, based on my AI security background, what really bothers me is the use of generative AI to basically create deep, deep fakes and scam certain users. Like there are many different campaigns out there. For example, the US President Joe Biden, they showed that Joe Biden was actually manufactured to say something that he didn't actually say in order to manipulate the election. And there are also stories about grandparents being conned by AI generated phone messages saying urgently send us money right now for your grandson. So that's another challenge. And then how do we actually distinguish generative AI security threats from a legitimate activity from a normal security attack? That is very challenging. And, and generative AI is making it much easier for people to exploit these vulnerabilities. If you've heard of We've all heard of ChatGPT, but people might not have heard that phishing emails are actually much more advanced now because of generative AI. So initially, people could easily see that an email was a phishing email because of misspelled words, incorrect grammar, basically obvious mistakes. And now because of generative AI, we have seen that emails are actually much better structured. They don't have the usual signs of a phishing email. So it's much easier to get tricked by these scams. So now if anyone does see an email that looks even slightly suspicious, even if the grammar is correct, please don't just click, click something right away. Be careful because it might not be as obvious as it was before, but it's still a phishing email. It's interesting that nowadays, even the, the, realist, the realistic email may even look more phishing because of the grammar. <laughs> yeah. So uh, when it comes to that, uh, uh, Women in cybersecurity. I think Josephine should ask that question concerning women in cybersecurity. Okay, I don't know why you didn't ask that, Dale. But uh, yeah. Um. So, what? How do you see the future of women in technology? Um. Really, I know you. You're a great role role model for women in technology, women in cybersecurity. Um. Perhaps also apart from the future, perhaps also advice somebody wants to get into the industry, what should they look out for? What should they do? I know the mentors, having mentors is important, but what else, what else do they need to do? Yeah, having mentors also, if they're interested in certain technology, then joining meetups in the community. So there are many different kinds of meetups, whether it's cybersecurity, whether it's programming, whether it's AI, and joining those kinds of meetups 
and just networking with people, learning from them. If they're students taking classes in subjects that interest them and don't get intimidated if they're the only woman or the only minority in the room because you know we need diverse perspectives in tech. So I think my biggest advice is to just follow what interests you, follow what you enjoy and, and don't care about what other people think, just do what you enjoy. I, that's my biggest advice. And I think the future is really bright for women in technology. There are so many role models now that weren't there when I was a student. I used to be the only woman in a lot of my classes, but now we're starting to see more and more women enrolling into technology. So definitely the future is bright. Uh, what year were you, did you, was that when you were the only woman in your class? So that was very recent. That was uh, 2018. And I was actually the only woman in a lot of my classes. But I, I'm seeing now that even if I was the only woman, that now, especially after COVID, there are a lot more online networking platforms that didn't exist before the pandemic. Yeah, it's interesting because I did my uh, degree um over 30 years ago now and uh i was the only black woman in my class we were a class of 100 with uh, 10 women uh that was doing computer science so um i hope that the future is a lot brighter than it is that it is been for you that and me especially because uh we want to see a lot more women going going into university in the technical degrees um so yeah, so looking forward to a bright future for, for, for young women, yeah. Yeah, definitely. So if someone is just joining in now, what, what, what would be like those final thoughts you would give them if they are planning on joining cybersecurity? I think a lot of people are now attracted to cybersecurity because of the idea of cybersecurity. But my advice to anyone interested in cybersecurity, first research what it is that you are actually interested in, instead of just saying, I want to go to the job that has the most money. Because if you just pursue money in your career, you won't be happy. Ultimately, you need to do something that interests you, right? Like I'm really interested in AI security, but Maybe if someone doesn't like the idea of AI, they don't want to work with machine learning, then they shouldn't pursue that kind of career. So I think that's my advice first, is just figure out what it is that interests you. And then try to create side projects based on whatever it is that interests you. Let's say you're really interested in maybe making an app. This is more computer science related, but maybe you're really interested in making an app to, I don't know, to um, maybe a Google Maps equivalent or maybe a hiking app equivalent. Let's say you're really interested in hiking, then you can make these kinds of apps. And that is very rewarding for you because then you have a portfolio of different projects that you can refer to. And even within cybersecurity, there are these kinds of side projects that you can do, whether it's creating your own 
phishing email detection, ser detection service, whether it's creating a credit card fraud detector, you can do these kinds of side projects and that helps you build your knowledge and also helps you understand what you're interested in. And then I also recommend joining conferences if you're interested in that. So some of the conferences online are actually very affordable and some of them are actually free for minorities and women. So I recommend joining some conferences. There are also free online conferences and online meetups that are almost like conferences, which helps you network with people. Because sometimes you need to discuss your ideas with other people because you don't know cybersecurity yet. So learning from others who are in the field, that definitely would help you. Thank you for that. Uh, Josephine, do you have any parting shots? Uh, no, not, nothing more, but I just want to just say thank you so much for, for coming on to the sh uh, on our podcast. Um, you know, you have a fantastic CV. Um, you're a great role, role model for, for women. And I'm hoping that our community will uh, be able to, you know, follow what you're doing, um, you know, just to, 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 to see what, where, what progress you're making. But we really wish you the very best in, in everything that you're doing, all your mentorship, all the, your adjunct professor role um, and, your, and your role at uh, Nokia as well. So thank you very much for coming and we highly appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate being on this show. Uh, with that, uh, I think I have nothing more to say about from uh, See you on the next podcast.